Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Okay, kid. Now, while boomers don't have a sterling reputation dealing with all things electronic, many of us are willing to trade a hardcover for an ebook. A book that I don't particularly love, but I want to try to get through, I can turn on the audiobook and it keeps going whether my concentration is there or not. So I can still come back to it. That's adult librarian Amber Philbeck, who, though not a boomer, has some insights into boomers' reading habits. Now let's turn to listening habits. What do people not want in their new cars? Nowhere on the list do they want a radio. Bob Taylor, a retired media professor, talks about radio broadcasting and its future. In the news, you'll hear about extreme heat and cognitive decline, Medicare and vaccines, 401ks and early withdrawals, too early, say some people, walking for your health, and it's not as many steps as you might think. And Bob Smith will host part two of our Buddy Holly special during the second half of the program. The news is next. Boomer News, I'm Robert Rickman. This from No Ridge Science Report. Recently, researchers dug into the medical records of over 1.3 million people between 65 and 99. They looked for memory problems and mental decline, a hard time thinking and remembering like, oh, I have had recently with COVID brain fog. The researchers studied the records from 2009 to 2018. The team discovered that back in 2009, for every 1,000 people they watched for a year, there was one person who had trouble thinking and remembering. But by 2018, for every 1,000 people they watched for a year, there were three new people with cognitive problems. That's three times as many as before. Brendan Hallam, a student doing his Ph.D. at UCL Epidemiology and Healthcare, led the study. He said this research shows us how common memory problems and mental decline are among older people. He also said it gives us a better idea of how likely it is that these symptoms might lead to a serious memory disease called dementia. Over the last 10 years, there's been a push to get people to talk to their doctors earlier if they're worried about their memory. And this study found that people over 80, women, and those living in poorer areas were more likely to talk to their doctors about memory problems. They were also more likely to end up with a dementia diagnosis. So the team found out that after a person's doctor wrote down that they had memory concerns, almost half of them would have dementia within three years. And if the person already had a mental decline, more than half of them would have dementia in the same time period. Professor Kate Walters, who worked on the study with Hallam, explained it like this. If a person's doctor notes they're worried about their memory, there's about a 50% chance they'll have dementia within the next three years. Hallam added that having problems with memory and thinking aren't just signs of dementia, but they show a high risk of getting that disease. Now let's talk about cold and hot. Metro weather. And not just the weather for any metro, it's the weather for basically the world. Now lately, it's been hot, as we can say it here, hot as mm, in a large part of the country. Where I am here in the lower Midwest, the temperature is somewhere in the 90s, and that's been that way for weeks, daytime temperatures. Because of this record heat, hurricanes, wildfires, blizzards, and other extreme weather, and the effects of climate change aren't in the future. They're happening right now. 
July of this year was the planet's hottest month in recorded history, and that was also in the Arctic Circle. And while the recent high temperatures and debilitating humidity may not be responsible for as much property damage as a hurricane, it's been disastrous for our mental health. Heat waves are becoming more frequent, widespread, intense, and severe, and they're lasting for longer periods of time, says Amruta Nori Sarma, Ph.D., an assistant professor in the Environmental Health Department at the Boston University School of Public Health. He said we call it a broken record, record-breaking heat. And as it continues, more and more people are becoming cognizant of both the physical and mental health aspects of extreme heat exposure. Now, the link between excessively hot weather and mental health isn't widely understood, but research as well as insights from therapists and other clinicians help us to understand better how oppressive, inescapable heat can wreak havoc on our individual and collective mental health. On a sweltering day, a person could get irritable, angry, aggressive, fatigued, or all the above. And some people showed symptoms similar to seasonal affective disorder always during the hottest parts of summer and can include increased feelings of depression and isolation, lack of motivation, energy, and interest in activities they otherwise enjoy. After analyzing data from approximately 3.5 million trips to emergency rooms across the U.S. between 2010 and 19, researchers from Boston University School of Public Health found that the rate of ER visits was 8% higher on very hot days compared to the coolest days of the summer. The results of their original investigation were published in an article in JAMA Psychiatry in 2022. So, scientific research is showing that this increased heat due to climate change is affecting our brains. Other medical news. A new prescription drug law that went into effect January 1, 2023, will help save money for people with Medicare. This law improves access to affordable treatments and strengthens the Medicare program. This means that more vaccines are covered. People with Medicare Part D drug coverage now pay nothing out of pocket for even more vaccines. Your Part D plan won't charge you a copayment or apply a deductible for vaccines the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices recommends, including the vaccines for shingles, whooping cough, and more. And insulin. Your Medicare drug plan can't charge you more than $35 for a one-month supply of each Part D covered insulin, and you don't have to pay a deductible. Part B insulin costs. If you use an insulin pump that's covered under Part B's durable medical equipment benefit, or you get your covered insulin through a Medicare Advantage plan, your cost for a month's supply of Part B covered insulin can't be more than $35. The Part B deductible won't apply. For more details on this, uh, check out uh, Medicare, their website, or give them a call. Let's talk about some more statistics. According to a Gallup poll taken in 2020, the number of books read by Americans 55 and older dropped from an average of nearly 17 read a year to 12, while there has been little change in the average number read by those younger than 55. Older adults traditionally read a lot more than younger adults did, but that difference has vanished. Overall, Americans say they read an average of nearly 13 books during the past year, a smaller number than Gallup has measured in any prior survey dating back to 1990. The decline is not because fewer Americans are reading at all, a percentage that has held steady at 17%, but because Americans are reading fewer books. Now we talk with Amber Philbeck of Ann West District Library in Carterville, Illinois. Amber has been recently named the adult librarian there, 
and she tells me about boomers who visit her library. I'd say they're probably one of the groups of people that are in here the most getting books. What kind of books do uh, the people who are baby boomers normally check out? Well, I think there's a pretty big variety, like with most people, but um, they do read a lot of fiction, a lot of uh, mysteries, kind of general fiction, bestsellers, that kind of thing, and a lot of, I've seen a lot of nonfiction go out with them too, so. What type of nonfiction? It's kind of all over the place, but I know a lot of biographies get read. Um, there's, it's kind of a varied interest on the other aspects of it, um, but just kind of about the world, just kind of learning new skills, new things. As a librarian, have you found, and I've talked to other people who've had the same problem, that um, your cell phone, which you've got right next to you, mm -hmm. has become more dominant than reading books? I, for certainly, for some people, I'd say that's the case, but I think there are a lot of people that still like to have a physical book and, and like to read that though. I don't think that's gone away. Now, what do you um, think the future looks like as far as older people reading, based on your observations as an adult librarian? Um, I think they'll still be coming in for print books, for sure. Um, but I do know that I've seen a lot of um, older people checking out audiobooks on CD. Um, I'm sure they probably do that on their devices as well. But audiobooks seem to be a pretty popular option. I wrote a novel, and I... Uh, I sat in my closet for one summer uh, doing the audio book, and I'm finding that those are selling pretty well compared to the print book. Yeah, I, I think there's a big interest in those. I've been reading a lot of those myself because I can listen to them in the car when I commute. So, I have a friend of mine, one of the contributors to OK Boomer, uh, Bob Smith. He's the one who worked with me and Anna at uh, WRHA Radio back in the 70s. And this hit me as if it were something I never heard before in my life. I was telling him that I read maybe one or two books a year now. I used to read four or five. I'd have four or five piled up. I'd be, you know, go from one book to the other. And he suggested audiobooks. And it just struck me like, why didn't I think of that? Yeah, there's, there's definitely an ease to get through an audiobook that you don't necessarily have with a print book. Sometimes a book that I don't particularly love but I want to try to get through I can turn on the audiobook and it keeps going whether my concentration is there or not so I can still come back to it and you know I don't have to put in as much effort to continue reading it and I still get all the information and you're a librarian I am a librarian and I definitely still lose uh, concentration when I read now uh, have you noticed that you have lost concentration more often and for longer periods uh, because of cell phones that's probably a factor. And COVID, uh, I noticed everyone uh, wearing masks when I first started coming to this library. And um, there's isolation. Do you find that's been a problem as far as concentrating on your reading? It could be. I haven't given that a lot of thought. Okay. What do you think, looking into your crystal ball, which you have right in front of you, uh, what do you think the future is for the baby boomers and reading, say, audiobooks as opposed to printed books? I'd say that that could go either way. Trying to predict that is, is really challenging. Um, but I, I think audiobooks will only become more popular as time goes on. 
That was Amber Philbeck, adult librarian at Ann West District Library in Carterville, Illinois. Now, Carterville is approximately 50 miles north of where the Ohio and Mississippi rivers come together. And this whole area is called Southern Illinois. Uh, to the south of Carterville are forests, and then to the north are farms. It's an unusual place because what used to be a major university was 15 miles away, which is unusual to have a major university in small towns. Now let's turn to another subject that we all know all about. Okay, Boomer. Okay, thank you, kid. You're hearing this program on FM radio, you too, kid, and over the Internet, but you won't hear it on AM radio. Now think about it. We boomers were weaned on AM radio and grew up to hear, or more correctly, not hear it so much anymore. And now we go into depth with a retired Western Kentucky University professor, Bob Taylor, about his experience back in the 60s with the magic of AM radio. I'm in this business and have been for over 50 years because of AM radio. I mean, that, that, that's what got me excited. Uh, we had two local AM radio stations in my hometown of Pittsfield, Massachusetts, when I was growing up. Listened to both of those. Got my first AM radio, which was a transistor, AM only, no FM at that time, uh, a little Zenith Royal 50. And that little radio would allow me to tune in both local radio stations as well as the big top 40 radio stations from Albany, Schenectady, Troy. You may have heard of, of either of these, WPTR 1540 and WTRY 980 AM. And then at night, my little transistor radio and my little earplug would pick up WKBW, WLS, WCFL, CKLW. And it was just inspiring. Every one of these stations had incredible air personalities. Mm -hmm. And I said, I want to be that. I want to do that. And that's what got me excited. So it's sad for me to think that AM is going away. But then again, coal powered America. Yeah. And I lived in Kentucky for seven years. Mm -hmm. And there were more educators in Kentucky than there were coal miners. There were more travel agents than coal miners, car wash people, car dealership, uh, people who sold cars, theme park employment outnumbered coal people in the coal industry. The thing that was interesting to me about that was they'd have black license plates in Kentucky that said coal keeps the lights on. And the reality is coal wasn't doing it anymore. More people were employed in the solar industry at six years ago than they were in the coal industry. And the coal miners were pretty, um, well, they understood this. They said, you know, there's more coal being dug than when I used to work in the coal mines and there's less people doing it because now they just blow the top off the mountain and scoop it out. They don't go digging through coal veins like they used to. And so I think what we understand is everything has a time and a place. Coal had a time and a place in, a, in the building of America and the world and the Industrial Revolution. I think AM radio had its time and place. And what I always found kind of interesting is at that point when the same number of FM radio signals were on the air is AM radio signals. 75% of all listening took place at FM. Yeah, I remember uh, in the 60s, I'm from Chicago, I would listen to Larry Lujak on LS. And on across the river, Chicago River, was WCFL, Barney Pip. I listened to these, and they inspired me to get in the radio. And I worked on a 10-watt 
high school station. That was FM. But the big deal back when I was a kid was AM. Uh, our cars for years only had AM receivers. And then FM started taking off in Chicago in the late 60s and early 70s. And uh, it pretty much dominated things by the 80s. Now, the, let's see, the Communications Act, or was it the Radio Act of 1929, specified three classes of AM stations, as I remember. You had the, the um, 50,000 watt blowtorch. Uh, you had the regional stations like WMT and Cedar Rapids. And then you had local stations like a station I worked on in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And the idea, I, I think, was to uh, provide radio service to everyone. So if you lived in some small town that didn't get any service during the day, you could catch WLS on the skip when it was a farm market station. But now with the Internet, you can get a 10-watt high school station if they still exist, and you can pick it up in London if you had Wi-Fi. So I think the the AM stations are obsolete now. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, well, they are. And, and right sitting next to me is a C-Crane Internet Radio. Mm -hmm. I can pick up the world on that. <laughs> it's just, it's mind-boggling. Any station I want to listen to around the globe, pick it up right there on that little Internet Radio. And it, it's a wonderful thing. I was, uh, I grew up in New England, so a station, one of my favorite stations, Rock and roll was WRKO and WMEX out of Boston. But I really enjoyed when I was going to college as a commuter student, because uh, I was in the western half of Massachusetts, out in the Berkshires. Um, I listened to WBZ, and I loved it. They had Carl DeSouza in the morning and Dave Maynard in the middays and Larry Justice in the afternoon. They had me, Mean Joe Green in the in the BZ Copter. They had... Uh, Gary LaPierre in the news, who even when he retired and moved to Florida, they kept him on the air doing the news from Florida. They'd ship it down to him and have him read it because he was so good. Here's the ironic part. So I'm in Boston earlier this year for my uh, one of our kids' graduation from college. And I put on WBZ on their app in my car and listened to it all the way to Boston. Could not get the over-air signal that far, but especially during the day. But I could listen to it on their app, and it was seamless, and it was crystal clear, and it sounded great. So for the fun of it, when I was in Boston, I thought, well, let me turn on 1030 and see what it sounds like. It sounded terrible. Yeah. It just didn't have the clean, clear sound. I had noise and dropout and all kinds of problems that I did not have listening to the stream on the app in my car. I have a car that I bought in 2012. Prior to that, I had a, uh, a van, and the AM radio sounded really good. Now, on my Civic, AM radio sounds horrible. And I was told that when I was at WMT, the engineers had set it up. The AM signal would sound good on a car radio or on a clock radio, but they did not tune the frequencies, the audio, audible frequencies, for so-called high fidelity. And my thinking is, because AM radio sounds awful on my Civic, I think it was kind of like, oh, yeah, we got to put AM radio on. Okay, well, we'll Mickey Mouse something together. What's your thoughts about that? Well, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I remember being back when I was on the air as a program director back in the 70s, and I was at a regional programming conference. One of the uh, panels they had was radio engineering. I said, well, I want to go to that. And on the panel sat the broadcast engineer for WCFL in Chicago. 
Hmm. And before him, all these other engineers came up and they were giving us all kinds of technical data about how they tuned their transmitter and how they tuned their antenna and how they made the sound of their radio station sound. And finally, the engineer from WCFL got up and he said, well, most people own a General Motors car and General Motors puts Delco radios in their car. So I bought a GM car, Pontiac, and I tuned WCFL to sound great in the Pontiac. And he sat down. And I said, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Makes so much sense. And and that is really what it's about. Nobody cares about it anymore. That's they right. They really don't. Why? Yep. Because, well, let's look at what happened. First of all, if you take a look at car manufacturers, they do lists of what their customers want. And I've looked at lots of these lists. But let me tell you what car, new car buyers want in their next new car. Number one, a proximity key. You know what that is? That's a key fob that can sit in your pocket. And as you walk to the car, the doors unlock. As you sit in the car, you hit the start button and boom, it starts. You never take a key out. It's called a proximity key. Wow. Apple CarPlay and Android Audio. They want USB outlets. They want blind spot monitoring and rear cross traffic alert systems. They want adaptive cruise control. They want a surround sound or surround view camera. I don't know how that works, but somehow it shows you everything around your automobile. They want wireless smartphone charging. They want rain sensing windshield wipers, automatic high beams, heated ventilated seats, and a heated steering wheel. Nowhere on the list do they want a radio, let alone an AM radio. Okay, Boomer. Dick Taylor will tell us about his recent visit to a rental car company and what customers want in the cockpit, so to speak. We'll talk with Dick next time on OK Boomer. To read Dick Taylor's blog, check out thedicktaylorblog.com. That's all one word, thedicktaylorblog.com. And, ooh, we have this story about walking. Now, this is from the W. DBX Bulletin Board, that's our home station. Let's tear it off. No one else is going to read it, just me. Hey, if you walk for your health, there is some good news for you because you might not need to walk so much. The number of steps you should walk every day to start seeing benefits to your health is lower than previously thought, according to the largest analysis to investigate this. A study published in the European Journal of Preventative Cardiology found that walking a little more than 3,800 steps a day reduced the risk of dying from any cause, and a little more than 2,300 steps a day reduces the risk of dying from cardiovascular disease. But the new analysis of 226,000 people from 17 different studies around the world has shown that the more you walk, the greater the health benefits. The risk of dying from any cause or from cardiovascular disease decreases significantly with every 500 to 1,000 extra steps you walk. An increase of 1,000 steps a day was associated with a 15% reduction in the risk of dying from any cause. And an increase of 500 steps a day was associated with a 7% reduction in dying from cardiovascular disease. Researchers at the John Hopkins School of Medicine found that even if people walked as many as 20,000 steps a day, the health benefits continue to increase. They have not found an upper limit yet. So that takes us to our little walk. Hurts. Yes, it's coffee time, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, but first, I'm going to uh, show you a place that we have in the studios already because we need more barbershop music, don't we? I want to see you out there, too. Bye, bye, bye. Bye, 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 bye. That's right. That's a 
Barbershop Quartet singing modern music. I'm still a rock star. I got my rock moves. And I don't need you. And guess what? I'm having more fun. And now that we're done, I'm going to show you tonight. I'm all right. Okay, uh, wasn't that good? Uh, Everybody needs more Barbershop Quartets, right, Sharon? Okay, Boomer. (laughs) Okay, Sharon. Hey, everybody, it's the White Raven from the Hot, Hot, Hot Louisiana Gumbo Pot right here on WDBX, Sundays, 12 to 2. Join me and all the Gumbo Pot heads where I'll be bringing you all the best music from Louisiana, New Orleans, the Bayou with a little bit of Delta Blues thrown in for good measure. So while you swamp rats, grab your Zydeco shoes, meet me in the Gumbo Pot at high noon. We always pass a good time, Chef. Peace, love, and Zydeco. Aye! It Are you an aspiring author looking to get your book published? Look no further than Tech Time Publishing Company. At Tech Time, we specialize in bringing the best books to readers everywhere. Our team of experienced editors and designers work closely with authors to bring their stories to life, ensuring every book is of the highest quality. But that's not all. Tech Time also offers a unique service to translate and narrate books and revenue sharing. This means that our talented team of translators and narrators will be compensated with a share of the book sales. So whether you're an author, translator, or narrator, Tech Time is the place to be. Join our community of book lovers and let us help you bring your stories to the world. Visit our website today to learn more. That's techtime.it. Techtime.it. And if you're looking for a first-class Italian translator, check out Laura Squigna. It's spelled S-G-U-I-G-N-A. Laura Squigna, and you can find her on the Tech Time website under Translators. Hi, I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. The world is dark enough. So we like to keep it fun and light. Join us for 30 minutes of fact-filled fun every week. On the Off-Ramp Trivia Podcast. You'll hear fascinating facts about history, music, discovery, weird animals, and everything in between. Including little-known facts about well-known people. Each week. Right here on The The Off-Ramp. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or visit us online at theofframp.show. Up next on OK Boomer, Bob Smith with a special report on Buddy Holly, the immortal singer. Today on The Off-Ramp, testimony from a man who was there when a rock and roll legend began. We had to come up with a name, so Jerry pulled out an encyclopedia. We came upon the, the name Cricket, a, an insect romantically referred to as making music by rubbing its legs together. So the, the connotation of music and uh, Cricket, it just tied, so we stuck with it. And we used it, and uh, quite frankly, everybody uh, sort of laughed at us. That's Nicky Sullivan, one of Buddy Holly's original crickets. And this is part two of Buddy Holly Remembered. Welcome to the Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. 
Today we begin part two of our Buddy Holly Remembered special. Buddy Holly, a 22-year-old singer-songwriter, had already inspired legions of would-be rock and rollers around the world, including the Beatles and the Rolling Stones in England, when he died in February of 1959, 60 years ago. He died when his plane crashed just outside of Clear Lake, Iowa, after a performance at the Surf Ballroom. On the 20th anniversary of Holly's death, a new tradition began at the surf. Today, it's called the Winter Dance Party, the name of the original tour that brought Buddy to Iowa 60 years ago. The second year of that event, I met and spoke with Nikki Sullivan, one of Buddy Holly's original guitarists. A reminder, this is a special I put together in 1980 about musicians who had a connection with Buddy Holly. Many have died since that time and those still alive are well into their 70s or mid-80s. But when this feature first aired, they were just entering middle age, as you'll hear in our next segment. You find them almost everywhere. By now, they're mostly middle-aged men. They've become doctors and teachers and businessmen. Almost every profession has them. When you see them in the yard with the kids or shoveling snow, they seem like any other middle-aged men. But there is something different about them. Back in their youth, they wielded the guitars and played the keyboards and pounded the drums in the first wave of rock and roll groups in the 1950s. But for one reason or another, they've almost all settled down by now. They're married, they have homes and families, even grandchildren. And Nikki Sullivan is one of them. Uh, I don't choose to be back into the, the uh, music scene. It's a good business, but it's, I don't want to work that hard. Man, I'm lazy. Nikki Sullivan is special because he was an original member of the great Buddy Holly's band, The Crickets. Well, that'll be the day when you say goodbye, yes, that'll be the day when you make me cry, you say you're gonna leave, you know it's a lie, cause that'll be the day when I die. We recently spoke with Nikki Sullivan at the Buddy Holly Memorial Celebration in February in Clear Lake, Iowa, where Buddy played his final concert in 1959. Sullivan told us how the crickets chose their name back in 1956, and it wasn't because of an insect chirping in their practice room, like the Buddy Holly story movie explained it. No, that wasn't much. Uh, that's that's showbiz. <laughs> uh, the, tr the truth. Uh, we were at Jerry Allison's uh, home, in the bedroom, practicing, rehearsing, and uh, we had to come up with a name. So Jerry pulled out an encyclopedia, and the most common usage at the time for names for groups was uh, an insect, bugs, or something to this nature. So we turned to a page in the encyclopedia that listed uh, different uh, insects, and um, the ones that we liked in the beginning had already been used. Um, so uh, we came upon the, the name Cricket, and if I'm quoting from memory now, uh, a, an insect romantically referred to as making music by rubbing its legs together. <laughs> so the, the connotation of music and uh, cricket, it just tied, so we stuck with it. And we used it, and uh, quite frankly, everybody uh, sort of laughed at us. The fear of being laughed at had already led the band to reject one insect name. We chose, uh, at one point, we chose the word beetle. Uh, without changing the uh, present usage. Uh, but Jerry said, no, that's a black bug that you would step on, and we, we don't want to use that. Come 
Sullivan said that the Crickets were inspired to record when they heard the song Party Doll. It was done by Buddy Knox, a Texas college student, who recorded the song at a little Clovis, New Mexico studio run by producer Norman Petty. That perked Buddy Holly's interest, and Holly went to Clovis to speak with Petty. Now, Buddy went before the Crickets had formed. Buddy had uh, gone over in uh, late uh, 56 and had spoken with Norman, and Norman liked what he heard and advised Buddy to get a group together. Well, we had already been working together without Joe B. Joe B. Malden had not come to the group yet. Larry Welburn, Welburn was our bass player. So uh, uh, we went back, obviously, in February and recorded, uh, I understand, four songs. I only remember doing two. But I'm told that we did four songs, and um, the rest was history, thank goodness. The Cricket's first big hit was That'll Be The Day in 1957. It was released on the Brunswick label. At the same time, Buddy Holly was recording and releasing softer ballads like Peggy Sue and Every Day as a solo artist on the choral label. It was all a part of Norman Petty's sharp business sense. Sometimes, however, his business ideas were questionable, such as putting his name on the records as co-composer even though he didn't help write the songs. In the beginning, however, uh, That'll Be The Day and Peggy Sue were written solely by Jerry Allison and Buddy Holly. However, if you'll look at the records for credits, you'll see that there, are an, or there is another name added. And I don't mean to disparage Mr. Petty. Um, he's a genius. Anybody that can do what he did to take a bunch of kids out of West Texas, not just us, but Buddy Knox, the Rhythm Orchids, the Fireballs, the String Alongs, the, the list is endless of hits this man has come out with. It's amazing what he did, and he built a studio with his own hands. Uh, the studio he presently has is a theater completely wired by him. And if you can imagine cables, thousands of cables uh, all hooked up in that studio, and he did it himself. Uh, the man has to be, uh, got to be smart. If you knew Peggy Sue, then you know why I feel blue without Peggy. Not the Peggy Sue. Oh, well, I love you, Kelly. I love you, Peggy Sue. The Buddy Holly records are so tightly put together, so good in their musicianship. We asked Nicky Sullivan if Buddy Holly was as demanding in the studio as the recent movie portrayed him to be. No. There was never, never any uh, pressure to be perfect. Buddy never demanded it of us. I think he did of himself, but not out loud. He tried very hard to do... Uh, to do what made him happy. And uh, Norman Petty, our manager, was never pressuring us. Uh, he just more or less let it flow. We just had fun. Oh, well, I love you, gal, and I need you, Peggy Sue. There are only a few film clips of the crickets in existence. One is an appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show in December 1957. If you look at that film, just to the left of Buddy Holly, you'll see Nicky Sullivan on guitar. And he remembers that night very well. Oh, very vividly. Um, when you're, a, when you're a, a young man from West Texas and uh, you watch The Ed Sullivan Show on TV, you expect to see 3,000 people in the audience with a huge expanse of stage work and lights and cameras and, you know, what goes on in a stage show. When we went to the studio, the front of the studio was no wider than maybe 50 feet. 
Uh, when we got in, it was even smaller. We just didn't know what to think about all of this, and when we went out on stage to set up, the uh, the stage was so small, it was it was almost cramped, and uh, the audience could not have seated more than two, 250, 300 people tops, if that. So uh, when it came time for us to go on, uh, we were apprehensive about it because this is not what we thought the Ed Sullivan Show was. We thought it was a giant auditorium. But uh, we went on, we had fun, and uh, loved every minute of it. It also helped our record sales, I might add. Now from Lubbock, Texas, for all of the youngsters of the country, we bring back the crickets. Now, Texas boys, do it. Coming up, Nicky Sullivan talks about the breakup of the crickets, why he and others weren't included in the movie The Buddy Holly Story, and why Nicky Sullivan finally quit the music business. Maybe, baby, I'll have you. Maybe, baby, you'll be true. Maybe, baby, I'll have you for me. It's funny, honey, you don't care You never listen to my prayers Maybe, baby, you will love me someday Well, you are the one that makes me glad And you are the one that makes me sad When someday you want me Well, I'll be there Wait and see Maybe, baby Well, you 
me glad any other one that makes me sad when someday you want me will I be there wait and see maybe baby I'll have you maybe baby you'll be true maybe baby I'll have you for me maybe baby You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. The original Crickets split up at the end of 1958 and went their separate ways. Buddy Holly went on to record as a solo artist, while some members of the band went on playing together until the mid-1960s. But Nicky Sullivan had quit the group nearly a year earlier, and he says there was a very simple reason. We were having some friction, uh, financial frictions, um, among other things, but that was, that was mainly the reason that I left. Um, it's a very complicated business. And uh, being young and being extremely tired, uh, I, don't, I don't believe I could have made a rational decision if I'd have wanted to. But I decided to leave the group, and I've not ever regretted uh, my decision. Uh, I, I miss seeing the guys. I really do, because they're good people. I left the group uh, shortly after the Ed Sullivan Show in 1957 and uh, became a recording artist on my own. At one point, Sullivan's career got a helping hand from the Buddy Holly family. I did do a, a record on um, Jubilee label with Gene Evans. Uh, we were the call the Hollyhocks. Um, Buddy's father uh, paid for the sessions and for getting us started uh, through the New York connection that we had with the Crickets. And it's one of the finest recordings I ever made. Didn't sell anything. <laughs> Sullivan's journey through the music world lasted for another decade, and it was marked by more than its share of ups and downs. At times, he says, he became disgusted with the music business, with success and then failure, and he quit, only to start up and try once again. So I went to California and uh, tried it out there. I tried the smallest clubs in the world and the, the dives, if you will, trying to uh, get my head screwed on right. And uh, I was having a, a rough time of it. I just could not make myself want to be in show business again. So I quit. I sold my instruments again for a third time. And uh, one night at the um, Palomino Club in Van Nuys, California, or, or North Hollywood, excuse me, um, Glenn Campbell and uh, quite a few other stars were giving a benefit show. And uh, this friend uh, got Glenn Campbell off to the side and said, hey, I need you to talk to this man. So we sat down and we talked a good, uh, at least 15 or 20 minutes. And I just told the man, I said, hey, guy, I cannot get up on a stage. I am absolutely shell-shocked. I'm frightened to death. I said, just tell me what to do. And he says, do it. Just go up there and do it. I said, I can't. And this went back and forth. And he said, man, I don't know what to tell you. He said, but just get up there and do it. Well, I went home that night and I laid down and I cried. As, as hard as I've ever cried in my life. I really needed help. 
two days later, I get a phone call from an, somebody I did not know asking if I would join a group. And uh, I went over that day and we sat down and picked a little and it lasted five years. So in 1967, I said, hey, boy, I'm, this is the way to go. And I was playing in all the top spots in Hollywood. I'd gotten out of my shell and went back to work. The group was called Soul Incorporated, which had several regional hits on the West Coast, in addition to clubs and concerts. It looked like Nicky would spend the rest of his life in the music business after all. But... Then I met my wife. <laughs> and uh, I immediately fell in love. And I had a choice to make. Well, in fact, we had one and a half dates and got married. The half date, I stood her up for an hour. <laughs> so... Uh, um, I had a decision to make and I made it. I said, no, this is, I'm not the type of individual who can make a career in show business and have a happy family. I just didn't feel I could do it. I still question whether I could or not. I'm too moody. All right, let's have a nice round of applause for Mr. Buddy Holly and the Cricket. What of the movie, The Buddy Holly Story? If you know Buddy Holly purely from that film, you've never heard of a number of key people in the real life Buddy Holly story. So why did the movie makers leave out people like Nicky Sullivan? They didn't know enough about me. John Goldrosen, who originally wrote the book, The Buddy Holly Story, uh, called me in San Antonio in sometime around 72 and told me he was writing this book and he wanted to collaborate with me and get some input. And uh, my wife was having, or getting ready to have a set of twins. And uh, we were having some problems. And uh, she delivered prematurely. And we almost lost those kids. And for about uh, 29 days, um, I didn't think of anything else. So I didn't get to, to work with John. The book came out, and the producers used the book as a foundation to base the story of the movie. So I'm not mentioned in that first book too much. So they didn't know enough about me and they figured that they could just leave me out and nobody would you know, notice or be the wiser. Um, they do now wish that they had have included me. Uh, they've had quite a bit of mail and you know, certain problems over it, but uh, I have no ill feelings. I'm just glad that Buddy got his, his uh, due. Every day it's getting closer, going faster than Roller coaster love like yours will surely come my way. Every day it's getting faster. Everyone says go on up and ask her. Love like yours will surely come my way. Despite the inaccuracies in the film, Nicky Sullivan has nothing but praise for the star of the motion picture, Gary Busey. Oh, outstanding portrayal. Um, if anyone wants to see Buddy Holly today, if they'll just take the time to look at the movie and watch the portrayal, if you knew Buddy, you would swear that Buddy had to have told Gary what to do in that movie because there are so many things that go on in that movie, such as a little thing that nobody would catch. Most people, when, when they wear glasses and they scratch their eye, they do it this way. 
Sullivan illustrated by holding a hand over his cheek and sticking a finger up behind one lens of his glasses. But he never did. It was always this way, the fingers in front of the glass. In one scene in the movie, Gary reaches up this way. No, nobody else would have known to do that. It was just, I'm sure, a, a chance of fate, but that's, those are little things you pick up. And he deserved his award. So now, more than 20 years after the Cricket success, where are the other band members? Well, Sonny Curtis is a recording artist and top songwriter with such hits as I Fought the Law and The Law One and Walk Right Back, and other crickets are still in the music business too. Jerry Allison, the drummer, and Joe Malden, the bass player, are presently on tour with uh, Waylon Jennings. And what about Nicky Sullivan? What does he do? Uh, I don't choose to be back into the, the uh, music scene. It's a good business, but it's, I don't want to work that hard. Man, I'm lazy. I admit <laughs> it. You know. I'm a district sales manager for a uh, national stereo company, and uh, I travel the entire state of Kansas and about a third of Missouri, and I work harder now than I did in the music business. And I don't want to work that hard. Yeah, right. Even though his days as a professional musician are over, for the past two years, Nicky Sullivan has done what he couldn't do on that fateful February 2nd, 1959. He's gotten up on the stage of the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa, and has performed with other musicians at the Buddy Holly Memorial Tribute Concert. Nicky Sullivan is in his 40s now. He looks like you'd expect his high school classmate Buddy Holly to look, had he lived. He has dark hair, over the collar and the ears, but still a conservative cut, dark glasses, and of course a bobbing Adam's apple when he talks. How does this man look back on those early years of his life when he and his friends from Lubbock, Texas were on top of the world? Oh boy, yeah, that was four college educations for me. Uh, the camaraderie that uh, the fellows that we toured with, the people we were associated with, uh, the crowds that we played to, uh, boy, those are memories that uh, I'll live with a long time. Yeah, I don't regret that at all. Remember they had a whole movie to tell their story 
But all I got is a song My story's got to end So here we go We had a good country band And I played the fiddle But he played the guitar And he used to play the banjo song We harmonized like Bill Monroe And the bluegrass boys Bob wore my hat And played the flat top with his thumb Played them joints and had a lot of fun with the women We squigged on bootleg beer and played licks in the sun We got her picture in the paper with her eyes covered up They said her music made the kids do sinful stuff We were crazy back then, but we sure had lots of fun But then Elvis came along and no but just loved him where rock and roll was coming from But I stuck around Cause someone had to play like Scotty Joe B played the bass And J.I. played the drum But I grew up and had to go out And make a living I picked a Slim Whitman tour And I wound up on the road And them good old boys And they got hot as a pistol for picking at the rock and roll. But that'll be the day came much too soon for Buddy. He was a good old boy and had a good Christian soul. He never knocked nobody down in his life. He loved us all and he treated us right. And you know the levee ain't dry And the music didn't die Cause where the holly lives every time we play rock and roll Sonny Curtis, one of the original crickets and the real Buddy Holly story. Our interview today was with Nikki Sullivan, described by Wikipedia as one of the four original members of Buddy Holly's backing band, The Crickets. Though he lost interest within a year or two of his involvement, his guitar playing was an integral part of Holly's early success. He performed on 27 of 32 songs that Buddy Holly recorded over his brief career. Nicky Sullivan was 42 years old the day we talked to him. He died in 2004 at the age of 66. Eight years later, in 2012, Nicky Sullivan was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of the Crickets. I'm Bob Smith. That's Buddy Holly Remembered. And this has been The Off-Ramp. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening to part two of our Buddy Holly Remembered special here on The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. We hope you'll join us again next time for more fun.
The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin. And that wraps up. Okay, Boomer, I'm Robert Rickman. Thanks to Bob and Marcia Smith, Amber Philbeck, Dick Taylor, Carrie Bolin, and Janice Paul. And also a reminder, OK Boomer is also in Nashville, Tennessee on WRFN. It's produced here in Carbondale, Illinois, 50 miles to the south of where the Mississippi and Ohio River come together at the radio station WDBX. Have a very good rest of the day. And also keep in mind that you always have choices. Choices.